Well, hello everyone. Merry Christmas. Welcome to all of you here and those of us, those of you joining us at our Crossroads and our Highland Park campuses. Merry Christmas to all of you. And I want to say happy birthday to my dad as well. My dad has had to share the spotlight with baby Jesus his whole life. His birthday is on Christmas Eve. So in honor of him uh, and his bitterness at having to share the spotlight uh, and in honor of my Texas heritage, I would like to share with you uh, my favorite Texas Christmas joke. So a guy is driving through Texas. He's passing through from one place to another and he's needing to gas up. And he goes through the town square and he sees in the town square the, the nativity scene there. Uh, looks, looks lovely, except he notices that the wise men are all wearing firemen helmets. All the wise men. And he just kind of, I've never seen that before. I wonder what's going on there. So he stops at the gas station and he's buying his gas. He just asks the guy behind the counter. He says, uh, so I'm, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm not from around here, but I was wondering if you know anything about the, the firemen's hats on the, uh, on the wise men. The guy looks at him and says, son, you don't read your Bible, do you? Don't you know that in the Bible it says the wise men came from afar? <laughs> Just right from the far to the, to the baby Jesus. It's uh, a good one. So with that, we will dig into uh, the fourth of our Christmas carols. In the Songs of the Season series, we're looking at A Little Town of Bethlehem. So we've been looking at various Christmas carols, their theological implications, and the first thing I want to say is uh, we are not just going to talk about <clears throat> this carol. As with the others, at the end of it, we sing the carol because it's not enough to just talk. <clears throat> Someone has famously said that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. You don't, you don't, that's just, you got to sing. That's the point of the song is to sing it. So we're going to sing this song at the end of the message. Um, as with other hymns, if you've uh, had a chance to read the brief history, don't do it now. I'm going to tell you about it, but uh, it's printed on the card along with the lyrics, and if you've read the background, you know that an Episcopal priest uh, from the U.S., from Boston, named Phillips Brooks, had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land in the year 1865, uh, which is, he had a sabbatical from his, uh, from his ministry. The Civil War had just ended, and he, he took a, this, this travel through the, the Holy Land in Europe, Remarkable, given that, of course, it would take on the boat about 10 days to get across the Atlantic, uh, not to mention the travel around there. But it was 152 years ago, and Father Brooks took an evening horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And we've got this map here to show you. This is in red, there is the trip that uh, probably the route that Joseph and Mary would have taken. We don't know for sure, but that would take them. Uh, the, the easiest route to go along the, uh, the, the river valley there. And then you can see at the bottom there, you've got, uh, that's about a 70-mile journey, but it's only six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So on that night, uh, they took an, an evening horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he wrote about his experience. He says this, Before dark, we rode out of town to the field where they say the shepherds saw the star. It is a fenced piece of ground with a cave in it in which, strangely enough, they put the shepherds. Somewhere in those fields we rode through, the shepherds must have been. As we passed, the shepherds were still keeping watch over their flocks or leading them home to fold. So he's walking through on, on horseback and just sort of experiencing what it must have been like even previous to that. 
that evening, and he comes upon the town, and they went to a service at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which is uh, still there today. It's considered the oldest church in the world, built in 326 by Constantine. It's over the traditional site of the Nativity, and the service began at 10 p.m., and it ended at 3 a.m. Coincidentally, our 10 p.m. service here uh, is also going to be about five hours. So I hope you get a good seat for that one. Pastor Mike wanted me to tell you that. Um, maybe a little shorter, maybe, maybe done about 2 a.m. But So that was 1865. And uh, three years later, Father Brooks wrote a poem for a children's Sunday school at his church back in Boston. And he asked the organist of his church to uh, write the tune for it. And that's the tune that we still sing today. There's a different tune that they sing in other places, particularly in England, but the tune that we sing today is the one that was written that Christmas in 1868. So just imagine how, how lovely it would have been to take that horseback ride through uh, that area, and you can just imagine the, the, the poetry coming to his mind as he's having this, this horseback ride. Now today the scene in Bethlehem is quite different. Uh, the two cities have, have both grown uh, so that basically Bethlehem is a, is a suburb of Jerusalem now. Um, and if you know anything about what's going on in the Middle East, you would know that uh, there would not be the ability to do a casual horseback ride in the evening today. Uh, suffice it to say that while Father Brooks said how still we see the lie about Bethlehem, it, it doesn't lie in a still way any longer. Um, so Bethlehem is in Israel, and it's very close to Jerusalem, but it's in the occupied West Bank, which refers to the, the western part of Jordan. Uh, it's inhabited largely by Palestinians. And as you might imagine, there's, there's a great deal of conflict in the area. There's been a, a, quite a bit of violence in Bethlehem over the years, plenty of anger and hostility between Palestinians and Jews in the whole region, of course. But so Bethlehem, which used to have a thriving tourism economy, has really taken a hit in recent years, uh, has a very high poverty and unemployment. And um, so people still visit, but it's just not as safe as it, as it once was. And I have a friend who was going to take her whole family uh, on a, a tour of the Holy Land at Christmas time, and they had to cancel the trip because of safety concerns. It is a very different world today over there. As I mentioned, though, uh, the Church of the Nativity, where Father Brooks visited 150 years ago, is still there. It's still a, a popular tourist attraction. Uh, there is an ongoing dispute about who owns the church and who, who should run the church. So there's three groups of Christians, Armenian Christians, the Greek Orthodox, and the Catholics have all laid claim to it. And so it was divided up at one point and said, okay, this is your portion, this is your portion. And even today, so they're trying to figure out who, who do we get to, to keep the peace between these three groups of Christians? It's the Muslims, of course. So there's actually today even still a Muslim woman that lives at the church and makes sure that everybody gets along, which I think is really interesting. Um, so if you visited the church, the Nativity, uh, it's likely the first thing that you would uh, notice about going inside is how you get in. Uh, and it is called the Door of Humility. We have a picture of it here. So in order to get into the church, you actually have to stoop down. It's been named the Door of Humility to stoop down, bow down to enter into it. Now, it was not built for any religious, the door was not added uh, for any religious reasons. If you look at the larger picture of the door, you can see that it was uh, the old arch 
was there, so it had a normal large entrance, but at some point along the way, uh, during the Ottoman rule, they uh, made the door smaller to prevent looters from coming in and, and easily taking things. Uh, so it's an interesting security device to have the small door. But even in 1865 and today, to enter the church, you have to bow down. And with that as our back- backdrop, we're going to take a look at the uh, very famous lyrics to our hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So he addresses the town. You can just imagine the, the, the scene is uh, set for you as he comes upon this town late at night on Christmas Eve. He looks over and he, he imagines speaking to the town, a little town of Bethlehem, how, how, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, that night when Jesus was born. I'm going to skip to the third verse now where he says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So he says, silently the wondrous gift, the gift of Jesus is given. Now, in some respects, Jesus entered silently. In other respects, his birth was announced. It was announced that it was going to be in Bethlehem. If you look back at the prophecy from Micah 5, where the prophet says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So, It's not an accident that a census was called for and that Joseph had to return to his ancestral home of Bethlehem because the prophecy had to be fulfilled, that Jesus, that the one uh, that was promised, would be born in Bethlehem. So in that sense, uh, he didn't enter silently, but in the sense that this incredible act of the Son of God being born um, it was really just a few shepherds that, that, that heard the news and it happened very silently uh, on, those, on those streets in, in Bethlehem. He entered with a whisper. And even today there are, there are some who would say, so if this, is, if this Jesus is such a big deal, where is he? Where, where do I find him? Well, Father Brooks nails it on the head by saying, where meek souls will receive him still the dear Christ enters in. You can imagine, I imagine, Father Brooks thinking back on his experience of bowing down, perhaps even on his knees, to enter into the church in the nativity as he thinks about meek souls receiving Jesus. And Jesus is ready even today to enter into every heart, every, every meek soul that will receive him. But the meekness is required. This word meek is not a common word today. I think it's actually a pretty misunderstood word. So for the last portion of our time today, uh, I want to take a look at the spiritual importance of meekness as it relates to receiving Christ, as to what Father Brooks was talking about, that where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. 
We're going to look at, at, at one verse. It's a short verse. You probably have it memorized already. Matthew 5, 5. This is Jesus speaking in the Beatitudes where he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So what, what does this mean? What, who, who are the meek? What is meekness? Well, another word for meekness is humility. It's, it's, it's someone who is gentle. Jesus is often described as being meek. Another way to, to define meekness is by what it is not. Being meek is not the same thing as being weak, although because they rhyme, I think people sometimes think it's the same thing. Uh, the opposite of meek is not strong. The opposite of meek is overly pushy, disrespectful of others, unconcerned with others. You, you could use the word proud or assertive to describe those who are not meek. So, uh, this is this, this idea of humility. And I, I will never forget when I first read uh, Mere Christianity. I was 17 years old in college, and uh, this one passage, I don't, you know, maybe a handful of passages I remember from the first time that I read it. And I'll never forget this one. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says about this, this idea of when you, when you encounter someone who is meek or someone who is humble. He says, this is what it's like. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So, step one to to becoming someone who is meek, to to becoming a a humble person, is to realize that you are terrible at it. Uh, That we're all born proud creatures, always wanting attention, wanting others to praise us, perhaps even in our attempts to be humble. So, Good old C.S. Lewis himself has given us our our first point. Point one is this. A meek person is a reformed, proud person. A meek person is is actually someone who is formerly proud, has realized that they are, and has done something about it, has has realized their own pride and that, that they need to be different than that. We're all in our flesh really bad at this, some some more than others. But you'll never find it until you realize that you're proud. And of course, it's so tricky because the moment that you uh, start to realize that you're really good at being humble, you failed again because you're, you're, you're taking pride in the fact that you're humble. In fact, as I was working on this message, there were a couple times when I was like, oh, oh yeah, oh, that's, man, that is gonna, and okay, you're terrible at this. You are terrible at being humble. You have no basis for preaching on this at all. Um, there is a fine line, of course, between humility and false humility. Uh, and some people think that just talking about how bad they are is, is, is what it means to be humble. And some people, I don't know if you've heard of the phrase, the humble brag, but it is this incredible, insidious thing that has happened largely as a result of, of social media, where someone says something and sort of on the face of it, it feels like a very humble statement, but you take another look and you realize, oh, this is just a, a, a back, 
backwards way of just bragging about something. So I, I have some examples of this. Uh, this is, these are actual tweets. So someone said on Twitter, can we start a media campaign to question how I got into Columbia? Still scratching my head about how I got accepted and demanding answers. So it's just sort of like, are, are you being, no, you're actually just bragging about how you got into Columbia. Okay, here's another one. It always feels a little odd to me when I get recognized in public. I never know what to say. Glad it doesn't happen often. See, because I'm just so humble. And, you know, what a, the people talk, I don't, just recognize, what am I supposed to do? I'm so humble. No, you're bragging. You're, you're bragging. Okay, the last one is this. I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag so worth it. Like, Good for you for being proud of how selfless you were, but no, actually, you, you did, and then, no, you've, you've totally missed it. Like, it just kind of messes with you. This, this attempt to be humble, um, it comes out uh, in job interviews uh, when someone asks what your weaknesses are, and if you, if you know the show The Office where Michael Scott is in a job interview and, and he, he demands to talk first about his weaknesses so that he can make sure he lets them know, these are my weaknesses. I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. So all of you young people going out to uh, interview, I, I read a report that they're on to that line of questioning. So if they ask you your weaknesses, like don't bother with that. It's just listing basically how committed you are as weaknesses. Also, maybe don't say things like, you know, I always show up late, I don't really care, and I like to steal money from companies. You know, that's another thing that you don't want to share. Somewhere in the middle is where you want to find. That, that's the right answer. But uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. Even when a lot of times an athlete is interviewed about they've, they've just accomplished something great and they say, what does it feel like? And they say, well, it's very humbling. It's very humbling. No, it's not. It's not humbling to win. It's humbling to lose. That's what the, I'd love to hear a coach say that when the, the losing coach gets interviewed. You know, they go to him. He's, he's, you know, he's just very quiet. That's the guy who should say, oh, it's humbling. I wanted to win and I lost and I'm humbled. That, people don't understand what it means, truly means to be humbled by something. So, back to the text where Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will will inherit the earth. The first thing to know about being meek is that you got to recognize that you're bad at it in order for you to recognize that you want to address it in your life. The second thing is that a meek person can expect blessing both now and in the life to come. Jesus says that the meek are blessed for they will inherit the earth. And there's different interpretations about what Jesus means when he says that they will inherit the earth, but I think Jesus is is really talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And so only someone who is humble and meek will be able to receive that that gift, to receive the gift of of eternal life. Uh, The irony, of course, being that it's it's the proud who would go after it. The proud and the assertive who would say, well, what do I got to do to inherit yeah, the earth? Oh, yeah, yeah, what do I got to do? I got to get ahead. Jesus says it's actually, it's the meek. It's the humble who will, who will inherit the earth. And then the, the last point about meekness is this. The meek understand the power they have and lay it down. So meekness, again, it's not weakness, 
Meekness is about understanding the power that you have, but then laying it down. So the Greek term there in, in, uh, in Matthew, it's the word praus, and it's uh, been used to define, uh, to describe other things in ancient literature. So first it was used to describe a soothing medicine. It was used by sailors to describe a gentle breeze. And it was used by farmers to describe a horse that's been tamed so that, so that it can be ridden. Now what do all these things have in common? Well, they're all, they're all things that are powerful and yet have been put under control. It's power under control. It's not weakness at all. A soothing medication is power. You think about, you think about a, a, a medication, something like penicillin, that is, it's, power, it's this powerful mold that someone has taken and, and put it under control to be used in a powerful way. An ocean breeze is powerful, and when it's harnessed by a sail, it can be very effective. A horse is a powerful animal, but it, it has to be harnessed, it has to be put under control. And when you've broken in a horse, you can put a saddle on it, and now it has incredible power to be used for good. Likewise, you and I, each of us are given power in life. In this country, we, we take great pride in our rights. We have these inalienable rights. And I am very grateful for those rights. But the power that these rights can bring us can also bring harm if they're not brought under control. Here's what A.W. Tozer says about meekness. He says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. So, in himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. The humble person is not the person that says, oh, I'm not good at that, oh, I'm not good at that, when someone praises them. No, it's, it's okay to recognize what your strengths are. It's okay when someone praises you to say, you are really good at that. You did a great job at that. Step one, say thank you. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's false modesty. Just say thank you. Step two is to realize, thank you, God, for making me the kind of person that, that has the power. Even if you've worked, come on, this isn't from God. I worked really hard to be good at what I do. Yes, but God gave you the ability to be that kind of person. So, so thank God, give him the glory, give him the praise. You can be a strong person and you can use that strength, whatever it is, under control and that is the definition of humility, of meekness. I think about uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So the, the old one, the musical version. And there's this storyline where the kids are going through the, the factory, but they've been approached by this, this guy named Slugworth. We find out later he was working for Willy Wonka, but we think in the time, that he says, if you can get me one of those everlasting gobstoppers, I'll give you money, and you know, it's worth it. So all the kids, they find out the everlasting gobstopper, and they're all planning on giving it to him. And at the end, Willy Wonka makes Grandpa 
uh, Joe and Charlie Bucket angry, and he kicks them out. And what does Grandpa say? He says, Charlie, if Slugworth wants that everlasting gobstopper, we're going to give it to him. So he's, he's angry, and he's like, well, we're, you know, we're, we've got this powerful thing, and we're going to get what, what's coming to us. And what does Charlie Bucket do? He walks over to Willy Wonka's desk, and he says, Mr. Wonka, and he lays it down. He had the power. He had the power to go and do what he wanted to with that. But he said, no, this is yours. It's the right thing to do. It's power, but it's, it's under control. This belongs to you. And of course, what happens to him? He gets the factory. <laughs> he inherits Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. He inherits, in essence, the earth. And it was that act that led Willy Wonka to know he can do it. This is a humble person. This is someone who, when given power, will not use it for ill. He will use it for good. This is not, these are not uh, things that I think are taught probably in our, in our business courses. Uh, they're not taught, you know, much in the marketplace at all. Getting ahead in our culture means being pushy. It means looking out for yourself. Meekness says, I'm laying down my rights for the benefit of others because that's what Jesus did and that's what Jesus would have us do. And that, Father Brooks says, is how we can see and receive Jesus. Now, some would say, what's the big deal? Don't, don't you preachers talk about how, you know, you just got to pray a prayer once and then, you know, you pray a prayer, you get, you get eternal life and then you can kind of get on with your life. Isn't that, isn't that kind of what you guys talk about? What's the, why do you, you got to be meek in there? What, why, why, why did, what, what's the importance of that? Well, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, depending, you know, despite what you might have heard from people, a, a relationship with God through Jesus is not just a one-time transaction. In, in some, some would, would maybe see it as like you're, you're becoming a citizen of a country where if you want to become a citizen of the U.S. and you, you apply and you, you take a test and you, you pass the test and then you say one time, I declare that I am a citizen and I will do my you know, duty or whatever, and that's it. And basically, if you, if you stay out of trouble for the rest of your life, you are a citizen of that country. That's, that's not the best analogy, actually, uh, for a relationship with God through Jesus. A better one is more like a marriage. It's not a perfect analogy, but in a marriage, you do say one time, I do, I will, I commit my life to you. But there is an ongoing sense of serving and of loving and of being humble and an ongoing relationship with God is the same way, that we have to, in an ongoing way, humble ourselves. You know, our relationship with God, if you, if you sort of charted the, the, the meter in each of our lives, it's, it's, it's not steady. Uh, you know, it certainly isn't true in my life that I'm just like, oh, every day I get closer and closer, I just get more meek and more humble. No, it's kind of like this. It's sort of like uh, one day I'm, I'm, I get it and I'm humble and I'm just like, and one day I'm just a, a proud jerk and uh, I have to learn over and over and over again that even today, it's not just a one-time thing, but today, each person, if we will humble ourselves and surrender ourselves more and more to Jesus, he will, he, we, we invite him in more and more.
I'd like to close with a final way to think about being a meek soul who receives Christ. Uh, Another way that Jesus talked about this is that he said that the way to receive the kingdom of God is to become like a little child. In fact, he didn't just suggest it. In fact, he he demanded it. Uh, Luke 18, 17, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is not optional. And, and Jesus didn't just tell us to do it. In fact, <clears throat> he did it himself. In fact, he didn't just become like a little child. He became a little child, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. He himself became a vulnerable, humble baby. He was powerful. He existed in eternity past, in glory, and he laid it down. He laid down that glory to enter into our world in, it turns out, a very humble place, there amongst the the straw and the animals. He did it first. He humbled himself. He became like a little child so that we could receive him, so that we could then become like little children, humble children to receive him. He became a baby who then became a man, a man who knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. And how did he do it? By saying yes to God with all humility and dying on a cross in our place. So it is appropriate for us to follow him in humility and meekness. And we can trust what Father Phillips Brooks said 150 years ago, where meek souls will receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the holy child of Bethlehem, would you please, even now, descend to us. Thank you that you cast out our sin and enter in. And Lord, we do pray that you would be born in us every day, today, tomorrow, that we would know your love, not just at Christmas, but every day. May we be those meek souls that will humble ourselves and receive you. We pray in your name. Amen.